Welcome to Fast Asleep. I hope you're comfortable, safe, and ready to go on a little journey with us. Because today we bring you part one of two from the very talented, very fragile Carson McCullers. We know many of her works from their film adaptations. The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, became a film in 1968. Reflections in a Golden Eye starred Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor. It was directed by John Huston, who spoke of Ms. McCullers' health. She was forever changed after being struck by rheumatic fever as a young woman, and Houston said, there was nothing timid or frail about the manner in which Carson McCullers faced life. And as her afflictions multiplied, she only grew stronger. Well, for this episode and the next, we explore Ms. McCullers' very first published work, it was in 1936, and yes, it is autobiographical. Just like the young girl in our story, Ms. McCullers studied piano from a very early age. Oh, and do you know the German word for a person who achieves great success at a young age? Well, tuck in everybody for Carson McCullers. Wunderkind. She came into the living room, her music satchel plopping against her winter-stockinged legs, and her other arm weighted down with school books, and stood for a moment listening to the sounds from the studio a soft procession of piano chords and the tuning of a violin. And then Mr. Bilderbach called out to her in his chunky, guttural tones, That you, Binchen? Well, as she jerked off her mittens, she saw that her fingers were twitching to the motions of the fugue she had been practicing that morning. Yes, she answered. It's me. I, the voice corrected. Just a moment. She could hear Mr. Lafkowitz talking. His words spun out in a silky, unintelligible hum. A voice, well, almost like a woman's, she thought, compared to Mr. Bilderbach's. Restlessness scattered her attention. She fumbled with her geometry book and Le Voyage du Monsieur Perrichon before putting them on the table. She sat down on the sofa and began to take her music from the satchel and again she saw her hands, the quivering tendons that stretched down from her knuckles, the short fingertip cupped with curled dingy tape. The sight sharpened the fear that had begun to 
torment her for the past few months. Noiselessly, she mumbled a few phrases of encouragement to herself. A good lesson, a good lesson like it used to be. Her lips closed as she heard the stolid sound of Mr. Bilderbox's footsteps across the floor of the studio and the creaking of the door as it slid open. For a moment, she had the peculiar feeling that, well, during most of the 15 years of her life, she had been looking at the face and shoulders that jutted from behind the door in a silence disturbed only by the muted, blank plucking of a violin string. Mr. Bilderbach, her teacher, Mr. Bilderbach. The quick eyes behind the horn-rimmed glasses, the light, thin hair, and the narrow face beneath, the lips full and loose, shut, and the lower one, pink and shining from the bites of his teeth, the forked veins in his temples throbbing plainly enough to be observed across the room. Aren't you a little early? he asked, glancing at the clock on the mantelpiece that had pointed to five minutes of twelve for a month. Joseph's in here. We're running over a little sonatina by someone he knows. Oh, good, she said, trying to smile. I'll listen. She could see her fingers sinking powerless into a blur of piano keys. Oh, she felt tired, felt that if he looked at her much longer, her hands might tremble. He stood uncertain, halfway in the room. Sharply, his teeth pushed down on his bright, swollen lip. Hungry, Binchen? he asked. There's some apple cake Anna made and milk. I'll wait till afterward, she said. Thanks. Mm, after you finish a very fine lesson, eh? His smile seemed to crumble at the corners. There was a sound from behind him in the studio, and Mr. Lofkowitz pushed at the other panel of the door and stood beside him. Francis, he said, smiling. And how is the work coming now? Without meaning to, Mr. Lofkowitz always made her feel clumsy and overgrown. He was such a small man himself with a weary look when he was not holding his violin. His eyebrows curved high above his sallow face as though asking a question. But the lids of his eyes drowsed languorous and indifferent. Today he seemed distracted. She watched him come into the room for no apparent reason, holding his pearl-tipped bow in his still fingers, slowly gliding the white horsehair through a chalky piece of rosin. His eyes were sharp, bright slits today, 
and the linen handkerchief that flowed down from his collar darkened the shadows beneath them. I gather you're doing a lot now, smiled Mr. Lofkowitz, although she had not yet answered the question. She looked at Mr. Bilderbach. He turned away. His heavy shoulders pushed the door open wide so that the late afternoon sun came through the window of the studio and shafted yellow over the dusty living room. Behind her teacher, she could see the squat, long piano, the window, and the bust of Brahms. No. Uh, no, she said to Mr. Lofkowitz. I'm doing terribly. Her thin fingers flipped at the pages of her music. I don't know what's the matter, she said. Looking at Mr. Bilderbach's stooped, muscular back, that stood tense and listening. Mr. Lofkowitz smiled. Well, there are times, I suppose, when one... A harsh chord sounded from the piano. Don't you think we'd better get on with this? asked Mr. Bilderbach. Oh, immediately, said Mr. Lofkowitz, giving the bow one more scrape before starting towards the door. She could see him pick up his violin from the top of the piano. He caught her eye and lowered the instrument. Oh, you've seen the picture of Jaime? Her fingers curled tight over the sharp corner of the satchel. Uh, what picture? Oh, one of Jaime in the musical courier there on the table, inside the top cover. The sonatina began, discordant, yet somehow simple, empty, but with a sharp-cut style of its own. She reached for the magazine and opened it. <sighs> there Jaime was, in the left-hand corner, holding his violin with his Fingers hooked down over the strings for a pizzicato. With his dark serge knickers strapped neatly beneath his knees, a sweater and a rolled collar. It was a bad picture. Although it was snapped in profile, his eyes were cut around toward the photographer, and his finger looked as though it would pluck the wrong string. He seemed suffering to turn around toward the picture-taking apparatus. He was thinner. His stomach did not poke out now. But he hadn't changed much in six months. Jaime Israelski, talented young violinist, snapped while at work in his teacher's studio at Riverside Drive. Young Master Israelski, who will soon celebrate his 15th birthday, has been invited to play the Beethoven Concerto with... Mm. That morning, after she had practiced from six until eight, her dad had made her sit down at the table with the family for breakfast. She hated 
breakfast. It gave her a sick feeling afterwards. She would rather wait and get four chocolate bars with her 20 cents lunch money and munch them during school, bringing up little morsels from her picket under cover of her handkerchief, stopping dead when the silver paper rattled. But this morning, her dad had put a fried egg on her plate, and she had known that if it burst so that the slimy yellow oozed over the white, she would cry. And that had happened. Well, the same feeling was upon her now. Gingerly, she laid the magazine back on the table and closed her eyes. The music in the studio seemed to be urging violently and clumsily for something that was not to be had. After a moment, her thoughts drew her back from Jaime and the concerto and the picture and hovered around the lesson once more. She slid over on the sofa until she could see plainly into the studio, the two of them playing, peering at the notations on the piano, lustfully drawing out all that was there. She could never forget the memory of Mr. Bilderbach's face as he had stared at her a moment ago. Her hands, still twitching unconsciously to the motions of the fugue, closed over her bony knees. Oh, tired she was. And with a circling, sinking away feeling like the one that often came to her just before she dropped off to sleep on the nights when she had over-practiced. Like those weary half-dreams that buzzed and carried her out into their own whirling space. A wunderkind. A wunderkind. A wunderkind. The syllables would come out rolling in the deep German way, roar against her ears, and then fall to a murmur, along with the faces circling, swelling out in distortion, diminishing to pale blobs. Mr. Bilderbach, Mrs. Bilderbach, Jaime. Mr. Lafkowitz, around and around in a circle, revolving to the guttural. Wunderkind. Mr. Bilderbach, looming large in the middle of the circle, his face urging with the others around him. Phrases of music seesawing crazily, notes she had been practicing falling over each other like a handful of marbles dropped downstairs. Bach, Debussy, 
Prokofiev. Brahms. Timed grotesquely to the far-off throb of her tired body. Ends the buzzing circle. Sometimes, when she had not worked more than three hours, or had stayed out from high school, well, the dreams were not so confused. The music soared clearly in her mind, and quick, precise little memories would come back, clear as the sissy age of innocence picture Jaime had given her after their joint concerto was over. A wunderkind. A wunderkind. That was what Mr. Bilderbuck had called her when, at twelve, she first came to him. Older pupils had repeated the word. Not that he had ever said the word to her. Binchen. She had a plain American name, but he never used it. Uh, except when her mistakes were enormous. Binchen, he would say. I know it must be terrible, carrying around all the time a head that thick. Poor Binchen. Mr. Bilderbach's father had been a Dutch violinist. His mother was from Prague. He had been born in this country and had spent his youth in Germany. So many times she wished she had not been born and brought up in just Cincinnati. How do you say cheese in German? Mr. Bilderbach. What is Dutch for? I don't understand you. The first day she came to the studio, after she played the whole second Hungarian Rhapsody from memory, the room graying with twilight, his face as he leaned over the piano. Now, we begin all over. He said that first day, it, playing music, is more than cleverness. If a twelve-year-old girl's fingers cover so many keys in a second, that means nothing. He tapped his broad chest and his forehead with his stubby hand. Here and here. You are old enough to understand that. He lighted a cigarette and gently blew the first exhalation above her head. And work, work, work. We will start now with these Bach inventions and these little Schumann pieces. His hands moved again, this time to jerk the cord of the lamp behind her and point to the music. I will show you how I... Wish this practiced. Listen carefully now. She had been at the piano for almost three hours and was very tired. His deep voice, 
it sounded as though it had been straying inside him for a long time. She wanted to reach out and touch his muscle-flexed finger that pointed out the phrases, wanted to feel the gleaming gold band ring and the strong hairy back of his hand. She had lessons Tuesday after school and on Saturday afternoons. Often, she stayed when the Saturday lesson was finished for dinner and then spent the night and took the streetcar home the next morning. Mrs. Bilderbach liked her in her calm, almost dumb way. Oh, she was much different from her husband. She was quiet and fat and slow. When she wasn't in the kitchen cooking the rich dishes that both of them loved, she seemed to spend all her time in their bed upstairs, reading magazines or just looking with a half-smile at nothing. When they had married in Germany, she had been a leader singer. She didn't sing anymore. She said it was her throat. When he would call her in from the kitchen to listen to a pupil, she would always smile and say that it was good, very good. When Frances was 13, it came to her one day that the builder box had no children. It seemed strange. Once, she had been back in the kitchen with Mrs. Bilderbach when he had come striding in from the studio, tense with anger at some pupil who had annoyed him. His wife stood stirring the thick soup until his hand groped out and rested on her shoulder. Then she turned stood placid while he folded his arms around her and buried his sharp face in the white, nerveless flesh of her neck. <laughs> they stood that way, without moving. And then his face jerked back suddenly. The anger diminished to a quiet inexpressiveness and he had returned to the studio. After she had started with Mr. Bilderbach and didn't have time to see anything of the people at high school, Jaime had been the only friend of her own age. He was Mr. Lafkowitz's pupil and would come with him to Mr. Bilderbach's on evenings when she would be there. They would listen to their teachers playing, and often they themselves went over chamber music together, Mozart sonatas or Block of Wunderkind. Hmm. A Wunderkind. Jaime was a Wunderkind. He and she. Then, Jaime had been playing the violin since he was four. He 
didn't have to go to school. Mr. Lofkowitz's brother, who was crippled, used to teach him geometry and European history and French verbs in the afternoon. When he was 13, he had as fine a technique as any violinist in Cincinnati. Everyone said so, but playing the violin must be easier than the piano. Well, she knew it must be. Jaime always seemed to smell of corduroy pants and the food he had eaten and rosin. Half the time, too, his hands were dirty around the knuckles, and the cuffs of his shirts peeped out dingily from the sleeves of his sweater. She always watched his hands when he played, thin only at the joints, with the hard little blobs of flesh bulging over the short-cut nails. Oh, and the babyish-looking crease that showed so plainly in his bowing wrist. In the dreams, as when she was awake, she could remember the concert only in a blur. She had not known it was unsuccessful for her until months after. Oh, true. The papers had praised Jaime more than her. But... He was much shorter than she. When they stood together on the stage, he came only to her shoulders. And that made a difference with people she knew. Also, there was the matter of the sonata they had played together, the block. No, no, I don't think that would be appropriate, Mr. Bilderbach had said when the block was suggested to end the program. Now, that John Powell thing, the Sonata Virginesque. Mm hmm. She hadn't understood then. She wanted it to be the block as much as Mr. Lofkowitz and Jaime. Mr. Bilderblock had given in. Later, after the reviews had said she lacked the temperament for that type of music after they had called her playing thin and lacking in feeling, she felt cheated. Oh, that stuff, said Mr. Bilderbach, crackling the newspapers at her. Not for you, Beanchen. You leave all that to the Jaimes. A wunderkind. No matter what the papers said, that was what he had called her. Why was it Jaime had done so much better at the concert than she? At school sometimes, when she was supposed to be watching someone do a geometry problem on the blackboard, that question would twist knife-like inside her. She would worry about it in bed and even sometimes when she was supposed to be concentrating at the piano. It wasn't just the block and her not being Jewish. No, not entirely. 
it wasn't that Jaime didn't have to go to school and had begun his training so early, either. It was only she thought she knew and just what does Francis know please be with us in our very next episode to find out good night <laughs>